1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, with your host, Rob Snowett. is the 291st episode of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. It's snowing in Washington, D.C. right now. It's cozy inside. I've got a big pot of tea. I'm going to do some storytelling. In the late 90s, in my late teens, I picked up a book by Howell Raines titled Fly Fishing Through the Midlife Crisis. He talked about local anglers around the D.C. metro area and the streams he can make a day trip to in Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. The book was exciting and educational, but as a teenager, it didn't mean as much to me as it would as an adult. And I read the book from the library and returned it. I didn't think about it much until I saw the book in the thrift store a year or so ago. So I picked it up and added it to my pile of books to read in the laundry room. I picked the book up over the summer and beginning of August. I was on the new sofa, which we purchased about a year ago to go in the kitchen. Because we entertained so much, the plan was to have people sitting on a comfy sofa rather than leather armchairs while I cooked and the wife made cocktails and entertained. So I laid out on the couch in the nice air conditioning and I picked up the book. The difference the book has from a teenager to an adult is profound. Family, marriage, life, death, fishing, work. And as I was reading the stories 
about the Pennsylvania trout streams, I was reminded of my youth, how I used to go up every weekend in the late 90s, early 2000s to fish the limestone streams of Pennsylvania. Streams I haven't fished regularly in a very long time because of work, because of family, just other things have gotten in the way. And as I'm rereading this book, he goes into detail about the anglers and the history of these Pennsylvania streams. And I had these great plans to return to these streams within a week or two of finishing the book. My plan was to fish the bamboo rods to rising trout with small dry flies and little droppers behind them, swinging streamers under cut banks and around structure, of taking my daughter with me and teaching her the finer points of dry fly fishing, which she's learned a little bit in Colorado several years ago, but she's about the age now where I think she should start picking this up. She's been fishing warm water for years. We should start focusing on trout. So I bought myself an out-of-state license with the plan to go up once a week and fish these streams. I packed up the car in late August. It was probably 94 to 95 degrees. Lots of ice water and snacks for the kid. My gear bag. My three-weight Orvis tippet. My bamboo five-weight. And I tied up an entire box of terrestrials. Foam ants. Foam hoppers. Foam crickets. Mini Chernobyl ants. I tied up a load of bacon flies and filled my risen fly box with those. One early weekday morning in August, we packed up the car. We drove up to Pennsylvania. We started with the yellow breeches, where quickly my daughter's attention was lost from fishing and focused on things on the stream. I had to deal with her frustration, which allowed me minimum time to fish. She didn't want a wet wade, which was fine with me. So I stayed along the shoreline with her. I lost one trout under a cut bank along a tree on my bacon fly. We stopped in the TCO fly shop in Boiling Springs, and then we moved over to Falling Springs Branch, where it's a quite different stream. And the weeds were chest deep along the shoreline, and we couldn't access the water. It was hot in the pasture. There were loud trucks driving by, and she lost her patience rather quickly. We got Slurpees or something cold to drink and headed home. My plan was to go up there weekly with her to teach her those finer points of dry fly fishing and the history of those pioneering anglers in South Central Pennsylvania from the last century. The plan was to go up on Mondays when she didn't have online learning. Quickly, I learned that was not the case. Mondays is two hours of teacher time, and then the rest of the day is spent online doing your own schoolwork. So weekly fishing on a weekday was not an option. And due to COVID, I've been extremely busy on the weekends. I've been unable to go up on weekends to go trout fishing. But this past Sunday, there was an empty space in my calendar, and I decided to do a trip up to Pennsylvania to fish the streams of my youth. I used to go up nearly every weekend. I was dating a young woman in Manhattan, so I didn't see her very often. My weekends were free. Gas was under a dollar a gallon. It was quite easy to go up for a day trip as I lived in an apartment I had no pets. I had all the freedom I could to go up early in the morning and fish late into the evening for the white fly hatch on the yellow breeches. I started packing up the gear on Saturday evening after my last guide trip of the afternoon. I tied up half a dozen bacon flies with tungsten cones and the bodies wrapped double in wire to make them extra heavy to get down in fast pools or along cut banks before they could be swept away. 
I had a myriad of fly rods in my car from clients. I had a five-weight Clearwater, a six-weight Risen ITB rod, a five-weight Douglas rod, and a five-weight Project Healing Waters rod, a three-weight Orvis Tippet, and a five-weight Bamboo rod. My gear bag was pretty much already packed. Four, five, six X Tippet, materials to build leaders, a myriad of flies, and I packed my solo stove Titan for making lunch on the stream. I didn't set an alarm, so I woke up around 7 o'clock in the morning, put on my layers, headed out the door, put on my waders, grabbed a 6X spool of Mirage fluorocarbon from the floor of the carport. I don't know what it was doing there. Put that in my waders, grabbed my gear bag, some bottles of water, and I was off. There's no traffic right now. So I got on the road, and immediately I had to turn around. Apparently, there was a fatal car accident of a person going off the road at about 6 in the morning and hitting a tree and dying. So my access to the beltway was completely cut off. I did the back roads down Woodburn, which has been noted as a space where bears have been spotted, and made it up towards Fairfax Hospital and got on the beltway. It was within an hour I was in Frederick, Maryland, listening to NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday with Lulu, and headed up 15 towards Camp David and Big Hunting Creek. I could have taken the main highways, but I decided to go the back roads, through the mountains, one lane in each direction, as I was in no rush. I had a chocolate and shore for breakfast, and noted that I was about 75 miles away from hitting 100,000 miles on the Xterra. I had one mile left to go to hit 100,000 miles. And before I could do that, I was in the parking lot. It was a quick and easy ride to get there. The first stream I'm going to describe is Falling Springs. My plan was to go back for a brown trout that I'd spotted in August with my daughter. It was downstream from a bridge. It was underneath a cut bank with an overhanging tree with lush vegetation all around it. I'd thrown my bacon fly into that hole and spooked the fish, which had to have been 20 to 22 inches long. It had shot downstream and out of view. I've been planning on returning for that specific trout for about four months now. It was then in the upper 90s. Today, it was in the mid 40s. We're going to listen to me walking towards the stream now. It's a little after 9 a.m. Sunday, the 13th of December. Just pulled into the Falling Springs, Pennsylvania parking lot. It's a good amount of water in here right now. I hit 999,000 miles the moment I pulled into the parking lot. And what I'm doing today is looking for a brown trout that I spotted in the summertime. I want to get revenge on a trout that's sitting underneath a willow tree about 100 yards from here. So my plan today is spend about two hours trying to catch this trout and then move on to another stream. So I'm going to try and fish three streams today. If we get into a hatch, I will break out the bamboo. Otherwise, I have a 9-foot, 5-weight DXF Douglas rod. I have a Ross Gunnison 2. And I've got a bacon fly tied on right now. It's a little colder and windier than I thought. So I had to go back to the car to get my down vest. And I'm going to go scope out my fish. See what I can do. If you've never been to Falling Springs, it's a small limestone stream that flows 
through a residential neighborhood. It's wide, maybe 30 feet at the widest in spots. It's very shallow. And the water percolates from limestone below. And a limestone stream has some very key, unique characteristics to it. Because the water percolates from groundwater, it's the same temperature year round, usually in the 50 degrees. Due to the nature of the rocks around it, there's a lot of limestone, and that allows for the macroinvertebrates to have more calcium, calcium carbonate in the water, which allows them to build more bodies, and thus you have more prolific insect and macroinvertebrate life. So these streams are known to have more bugs than others. They stay the same temperature year-round, which means the trout can grow year-round, the plants can grow year-round, and the things that the trout feed on can grow year-round. In Howell Rain's book, he describes the water as this. The surrounding Cumberland County lies atop a bedrock of limestone. This porous rock is laced with the largest overflowing springs east of the Mississippi and north of Florida, feeding streams of fabulous biological riches, such as the Yellow Breaches, Big Springs, Cedar Run, and the Little Tort Spring Run. The landowners along Falling Springs have allowed anglers to access their land as long as they just leave no trace. So there's a well-beaten path along the trails, along the side of the stream. There are periodic footbridges that allow people to cross. People just drive by and might wave to you. There's small parking access here and there. But for the most, most anglers would drive past this if you're not a trout angler. It's not a stream that you are going to seek out unless you were a fly angler. The problem with the stream is there are very few spots where you can actually seek out trout or prospect for trout in the words of Tom Rosenbauer's book. If the stream is wide and shallow, the fish can't hang out because they're vulnerable to predation from overhead birds. So you have to hunt out culverts, bends in the river. You have to look for exposed limestone rocks where water has carved away the soil and sediment around it. You need to look for bends in the river, places where fish would hide. So I start walking down towards my spot, and unfortunately, there's a gentleman walking upstream. We speak for a moment, and he points to his spot and said there's a large brown trout in there that he may have spooked already that day. So he watches me, says, go for it. I've already fished today. I'll watch you. So I take off my bacon fly, and I drag it through the weeds to get it wet. I throw it out, cast mend mend, and start jerking the fly through the hole. Nothing comes out. The gentleman assumes the fish has been spooked and probably isn't there anymore. And he decides he's going to move on with his day. I walk downstream to my spot. And I find out one of the only ways I can approach this hole effectively with three to four months of planning is to do exactly the following. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping 
MidwayUSA.com. I'm standing in the middle of the stream right now. I feel like I should be whispering. About 15 feet upstream from the hole where the brown trout was in August. I've let the water clear up below me. And I'm not moving anything but my casting arm once I'm done recording. And my plan is just keep watching the current and see how the water goes through this log jam. I've been waiting for this moment for absolutely months. Last time I was here, it was 100 degrees. And it's going to snow tonight. A little bit of sunshine on this hole would help. It's all mossy and green, and then white sand. Let's do this. The fish wasn't there. I ended up spooking a small, very small brown trout from just above the hole. The big one just wasn't there. So I decided to spend about 20 more minutes walking the stream, looking for fishable water, watching for bugs, and enjoying the peace and quiet of being out fishing by myself again, maskless for the first time since Veterans Day. On Veterans Day, I managed to catch several large catfish. So I got out of the stream and I started walking downstream and I fished for about 20 more minutes. The water was shallow, absolutely crystal clear with no signs of fish. I determined I could spend another hour there looking for fish or I could get on with my day. It was only about 10 o'clock at this point that I hiked back up to the car, crossed a footbridge, and spooked another trout along a cut bank along the road. Mental note to where that fish was. If I go back, I'm going to attempt to catch that fish again. So I got in my car and set my GPS to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. The next trout stream I was going to hit was the Latorte Spring Run. The Latorte is a beautiful stream that I have not fished in years, and don't think I've caught a trout there since 2004. My plan was to do some errands, head up to the Latorte, and have lunch, maybe along Shanks Meadow, where the benches and mailbox were, and watch some bugs. My first stop in Carlisle was to the beer distributor. Been running out of beer here and just don't want to go to the stores, and Pennsylvania's got an amazing array of obscure, cheap beers that you can purchase, as well as ciders, and other beers you can't get in Virginia. So I went in there. I got Rob a 30-pack of Lucky Streak for Hanukkah. Got myself a couple cases of Moosehead beer and some Lucky Streak. Noticed a lot of people in there weren't wearing masks. I got out, decided I was going to go to Walmart to go get some supplies. Just needed some regular supplies for the house, and I needed to pick up some lunch. So I drove down the street, waiters on, mask on, Go into Walmart, go to the soup aisle. I pick out a can of Progresso Chicorina. I've mentioned that soup before on this podcast. Maybe one of the best canned soups you're going to find. I got a loaf of locally made Martin's bread, which is made just down the street from the Falling Springs parking lot where I'd parked earlier. And I got a couple other sundries. I had a culinary mishap in the kitchen last Wednesday, a week ago, where I was using a wet knife on the wrong cutting board and... Uh, Managed to lop off sort of maybe a third of the, the left index finger, not, not cutting properly. So I needed to pick up some new bandages, as those of you with children know, that children will put a, a bandage on pretty much anything regardless 
if they need it or not. And I only had five bandages to triage my finger with until I got to Walmart. I didn't want to make any special trips locally, so I decided to do it while I was there, knocking out a couple birds with one stone at a time. I drove three miles down to Bonnie Brook Road, which is a big part of Ed Shank's book, Ed Shank's Fly Rod Trouting. And Ed Shank came to my local chapter of Trout Unlimited in the fall of 1999 and showed pictures of the massive trout he used to pull out where he was holding one by the gills and it reached down nearly to his ankles. It's a stream that has haunted me for years and it's known difficulty for catching fish. So I put the can of soup in my backpack, I grabbed my five weight, grabbed some matches out of the car and headed downstream. Compared to the other stream, again, it's narrow, it's shallow. It's crystal clear, absolutely chock-a-block full of aquatic weeds. Finding a trout here is one of the most difficult things you can do as a trout angler. Very reminiscent of the English countryside of the Cotswolds, where Andy took me a year and a half ago. I crossed the little footbridge and noticed plenty of gravel in the shallows downstream. I start walking and notice what possibly could be a red. A red is spelled R-E-D-D. And that is where trout will excavate gravel in order to lay their eggs. They're fertilized. And then the larva will hang out in that gravel until they're old enough to leave, which is why you should not be crossing gravelly trout streams during the spawning season. And I make my way downstream. There's now the Ed Shank Trail, which parallels the stream. And I've never seen more signage for a trout stream in my life. Every 20 or 30 feet, there's a warning about entering the stream due to spawning or careful about the banks can give way or that there's no trespassing along certain areas. And I find a spot with about 30 yards of cut banks. And due to the nature of the stream, that is very spongy along the banks, you've got to be very careful walking because trout can detect you from very far away. And as I swing and strip and pop my bacon fly through the holes, I see nothing. There's plenty of vegetation dancing through the stream, but no fish, just a couple of midges coming off. By now, it's in the 50s. I've removed my vest. I just have on my ski sweater, a baseball hat, sunglasses, no gloves. And I get to another footbridge and I watch. There's absolutely nothing going on. But the pleasure of being on a trout stream is not always about catching the fish. It's about being there the sound of the moving water, the woodpeckers pecking away at the trees, the ducks quacking away, and being with yourself and no one else and having that moment all to yourself. It's what makes fly fishing such a special thing. And I worked my way downstream looking for the pasture, trying to remember where it was the last time I was there, probably 15 years ago. I find no benches. I find no mailbox. I find no hawthorn trees that I used to avoid on my back cast due to the nature of their large thorns. My plan was to have lunch at the bench and just watch the stream. I continue fishing for another 15 to 20 minutes to no avail and find a nice spongy spot of ground to sit down on and have lunch. I take out my solo stove. It's about the size of a coffee can and it's inside of its own kettle. I sit down 
I grab a bunch of dead tree branches and cattail leaves from near me, ball them up and light them on fire with the match. I'm holding the solo stove perpendicular at this point so it catches fire. I light it, pour the soup in the kettle, and sit down and just observe. Bluebirds, woodpeckers, herons, geese, maybe a hawk. You can hear Interstate 81 far off in the distance. There's mayflies coming off. There's midges coming off. I'm watching mayflies coming off, drifting down on the surface, taking off in the air, and they're ephemeral, slow flapping on their wings, and nothing's eating them. Within minutes, my soup is hot. I pour it into the soup can and have my titanium spork and sit there eating. One of the cool things about this stove is you put on a little piece of metal that elevates the pan or kettle from the fire. And there's a gap for you to continuously throw finger-sized or thumb-sized pieces of wood in to keep it going. I finished my soup. By now, the battery had died in my DAT, and I had forgot to purchase new batteries at Walmart. So here's me using my mobile phone to record some observations while I'm on the stream. It's about 12.07 right now. I'm sitting along one of the meadows on the Latorte Spring Run outside Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It's my lunch break. I have my solo stove Titan right now. I just used some twigs and some dry brush to get it going. I've got some soup on it. And then I'm gonna pour the soup from the pot or the kettle that the stove travels in back into the soup can. I'm gonna eat it. There are midges right now. There are mayflies coming off. I have not seen a trout here. I know they're here. It's just a matter of finding them. I did not find my big brown on the falling springs. I did spook a nice eh, nine to 10 inch brown out from a cut bank. And I decided I was gonna spend a little more time here before I go to the yellow breaches. I stopped off at the beer distributor. I have 30 packs of beer here for $14. That's absolutely crazy. So I fished maybe a quarter to half a mile down here and the temps are in the upper 40s. I got the sleeves rolled up on my sweater and I'm in just a swampy meadow where I don't really have to worry about starting a fire because uh, everything here is just saturated. You're not careful, they'll sink up to your waist in spots. So I wanna keep finding some of the spots that maybe Ed Shank spoke about in his books. Just fish this historical stretch of water on a beautiful December afternoon. By the time I'm done, the embers have already gone out as I stopped feeding it. I filled the kettle with water, dumped the ashes on the spongy ground, soaked them thoroughly, and decided I was gonna head to the other stream. I had not seen any fish or heard of fish in the 75 yard stretch of water I'd been observing now for about 20 minutes. It was good to relax, it was good to hydrate. It was the first thing I'd eaten all day. On my way back, I take out my kettle, fill it up with water, and grab a handful of weeds to put in my aquarium. Now, luckily, the crayfish George finally died. So we're left with Spotty and Dottie, the obnoxious goldfish twins that hang out in there. I didn't know it was in the weeds, but I just wanted some plants so they have something to swim around with. I don't really care for these fish, but I figure just having an empty tank is a little cruel for them. I bumped into two gentlemen who were filming the stream. I asked if they were fishing or filming. They said it was easier to film than fish. Asking how I did, 
told them I didn't see any fish, and they said I'd be lucky to catch one fish a year there. They gave me a spot downstream to fish, but said the three fish in that hole were large and educated and would be difficult to catch. So I decided to pack up. Instead of fishing downstream, I was going to head over to the Yellow Breaches and stop in the fly shop there. They agreed I'd have a better chance fishing the fly stretch in the Yellow Breaches. So I got in the car, opened a cold can of Coke that I picked up at Walmart, and headed over to the Yellow Breaches. I stopped in the TCO fly shop to pick up some fly tying material. I've been tying more steelhead flies, some graboid inspired intruders and some hobos. So I needed some material to tie those in addition to the bunny reapers I've been tying. As I was checking out, Frank at the register recognized my name and asked if I did a podcast. And I told him, yes, I did. Thanks for following me on Instagram, Frank. I'm going to look through all of your pictures once I'm settled back into Instagram, I still haven't really been on much social media since the passing of my mother. Things have just had more priority in life. I'd rather just look out a window with the snow today than look at people's grip and grins. Though I do miss what people have been up to. I follow a lot of people's lives and stories, and I feel like I've been missing out on what they've been doing the last couple of months. So I left the yellow breaches, drove down to the parking lot, and I'm going to read to you from Hal Raines about the yellow breaches. So it happened that the boys and I became the glow bug scourges of Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania, where you can see big trout cruising like torpedoes and scores of dandy looking fellows and outfits that put to shame our rough rods and cheap waders. We exploited the biology of bread. That is to say that on certain streams like the yellow breaches, there is a mixture of trout born in the stream and trout placed there from hatcheries. At the point where the yellow breaches flows from the big spring fed lake at the quaint little town of Boiling Springs, the big hatchery trout gather under a bridge where the tourists and antique shoppers stop to throw bread in the stream. Trout, some of the monstrous, come zooming out of the current to strike this bread in a savage way. And if you drift a glow bug through this area, when the bread is on the water, you can catch a fish in every cast. It's a pretty spot too. The parking lot also is crisscrossed by the Appalachian Trail. So as I walked down to the chute coming out of Boiling Springs, I met a gentleman who was doing his section of the AT through Pennsylvania. He was from Georgia. I gave him my card, said, if you need something to listen to while you're hiking, you can learn all about fly fishing if you don't already. With that, I walked down to the stream and put on my polarized glasses and noticed that I could see things other people couldn't. People were staring at the stream without polarized glasses in the noon cloudy sun of mid-December, and I began casting a fish that I could see. A couple of trout below the footbridge were moving away from the bacon fly. I think it scared them. So I moved on downstream, and this is a very shallow, narrow stream surrounded by wooded hills on either side. It comes out of a chute from the dam. The water is ice cold, cold enough that in August, I was in pain wet wading through it in just flip-flops. The water is crystal clear. And again, just like the book says, 40 years later, there are still tourists and other people looking at the fish and anglers. You have anglers of all capabilities with all gear and manners. And I wanted to be one of those dandy gentlemen, but I did not wear my tweed hat on Sunday. I moved downstream and thought I spotted a trout in a riffle. And as I swung the bacon fly and jerked it back upstream, what I thought was a trout wasn't, but a small trout 
possibly a rainbow, came out from the rocky shoreline and grabbed a bacon fly and I missed the hook set. And I continued this method of standing behind a tree, casting a fish that see a fly probably every three minutes of every day of every year during the daylight hours. And I moved downstream until there were no more trout visible in the chute Hal Raines mentioned. This is where the Yellow Breaches stream, which he mentions is about 29 miles, and there's the confluence of the spring-fed water from the dam and the Freestone River of the Breaches. And the water's cold. And I'm only wearing my dude leggings, compression leggings, underneath my car hearts, so I'm not layered up. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. I start walking slowly. Definitely could have used spikes on my corkers. And I'm moving slowly as if I was in a slow little boat moving downstream. And I'm throwing the streamer to either side of the bank where fish typically would hang out. And I'd probably go for 100, 200 yards. As the water starts getting deeper, I'm getting colder. The clouds are moving in, and I'm not seeing any signs of fish. I'm not spooking fish. I'm not hearing fish rising. And now the water is probably waist deep. And I've got to be careful because... The seam that holds my hand warming pocket together to the inside of my waders came apart over the summer, about a 14 inch gap in my waders. So if the hand pocket zippers aren't tightly closed, my waders are going to fill up with water. I tried to use aqua seal as much as possible. That's a pretty big failure of a welded seam. So instead of sending them back and trying to figure out what would happen, decided DIY repair it myself, which I did, hopefully. And as I'm getting deeper and deeper, I'm now at chest deep and the water's cold. And if I fall, I'm pretty screwed. I don't have a whole lot of change of clothes in the car. I hear a little splash downstream. It could have been an acorn. It could have been a walnut. It could have just been a rock falling down the hillside. I don't know. So I start moving down that way, throwing the streamer under some trees and logs. And I see something in the middle of the stream that's just weird looking. It looks like a branch that a beaver chewed all the bark off of in the middle of the stream, except it starts to move. My eyes start focusing, and I realize it's one of those palomino trout. Not the golden trout that they're called in the east, but a palomino. You're going to have to read Anders Halverson's book, A Entirely Synthetic Fish, to get the full understanding of this derp fish. It's the color of a, a creamsicle push-up pop from summer. It's yellowy-orange, and it stands out in nature. It's completely artificial. And I make a cast for it just for fun, and it moves out of the way. And as I'm stripping the fly back in, I notice a rainbow trout starts following it. And it starts kind of just playing with the zonker tail. And I slow the strip down, make it a little more erratic, and the fish is playing with it like a cat playing with a ribbon or a, a toy. And then it loses interest. And I cast to it three or four more times, and we go through the same routine. Swims up, it mouths it, never really gets the whole thing in its mouth. This is a size 2 4X long hook, 
with an equal size length of zonker behind it. It's a big fly. It never bites down on the hook. At this point, I realize I'm not catching this fish. So I wait out and I'm going to move down to Allenberry. So if the top section is in Boiling Springs with a little parking lot with a smelter, that's historic, and the Appalachian Trail, this now is a wide stream with a dam, which is why the water started getting deeper. I warm up as I'm out of the water and I walk down to the dam. It's probably a couple hundred years old. It's called Allenberry Playhouse. It's a set of buildings and event spaces along the river with groomed grass and a little waterfall. There'll be fish in front of the waterfall and there are fish below it. Traditionally, I've had great success in my youth catching fish below the waterfall on my bacon fly. It's one of the few places I was able to perfect that fly over the years. I work my way from left to right through three to four foot deep water. There's branches, there's rocks, there's sticks, there's plants, all sorts of things fish can be hiding around and I don't get any tugs. I have had monster eating size crayfish grab my bacon fly there and I've pulled out those huge crayfish. I've had red-eyed Google bass, Google eye bass come up and eat the bacon fly in there at dark. Today, nothing. So I decided to move downstream to a spot that Mac and I talked about on his podcast episode was the bend at the end. Most of this water is freestone and shallow. There's some man-made riffles, but not really water I'm looking for. I cast my bacon fly to where I lost that trout in August. There's nothing there. So I move on down to the bottom, and this is a spot I used to adore fishing at dusk in summer. A white wolf with an RS2 dropper, and I would spend hours, hours fishing this spot, either stripping bacon flies and Travis beetle buggers, and then switching to dries. And there was nothing there but a blue heron, and I decided to call it quits. I was going to walk all the way back up to Allenberry, and then all the way back up, try the spot in the parking lot, and then head home. It's about 2.30 now, and I figure 3 o'clock is when I wanted to get off the river to drive home before it got dark. So I walk back up, takes about 15 to 20 minutes, and I decide to go for that trout again, the one that I missed earlier. And I start missing trout regularly on hook sets. I'm standing behind trees, and now I've got trout fever. My plan was to leave, but I'm hooking trout. I'm losing trout. I'm having a blast. It was so much fun casting that streamer in tight quarters through this cut little narrow stream with hills on either side. And the fact that people have been fishing through these waters all day and I'm still able to hook fish was amazing. Each section has got an angler. Everyone spends three or four minutes on a hole and then moves to another one. So after 30 minutes, everyone is shuffled through the same holes and discuss what's working and what hasn't for a while. I've now lost about five fish. Some absolutely beautiful rainbows that you can tell. You can't tell if there's brooks. You can't tell if they're browns. Just the light is so low in this late afternoon. So a kid walks past me and says there's some huge browns under the footbridge. And I'm questioning him in my mind because I did not see any huge browns up there. He tells me he's using a pink squirmy wormy. And I'm thinking to myself, I could probably start nymphing. I could probably use glow bugs. I may even have a honey bug, which was a traditional pattern for that area. Honey bug yarn with three strands of crystal flash coming off the back. I decide to keep throwing the streamer. I move up above the bridge 
to look down below and I don't see any monster browns. So I move to the next hole above. There's two gentlemen sitting across from me on a bench, just taking a break. I swing the streamer through the water and have one to two fish chase it right in front of the riffles. This is the last pool, the tail of the pool before the water goes over. I decide, all right, I want to catch a fish today. So I'm going to put on a worm. I open up my waders and there's that spool of six X. Now, mind you, it's late in the afternoon. There's cloud cover. I'm missing part of my left index finger, which has made tying on flies very difficult all day and reeling in very difficult. I'm having extreme difficult time tying on a fly to this. I decide I'm going to use a small size 12 purple worm that we use around here for bass and bluegill and stripers. It's on that size 12 BMU hook, the 500 hooks for $11. And it probably takes me several minutes to be able to tie that fly on. I think it's about time I start wearing reading glasses at 43 to start tying on flies. I do not want to do that yet. Once I go there, there's no going back. I don't want to look like Kelly Gallup always with having to have reading glasses around my neck or my in-laws who used to, instead of just wearing reading glasses around their neck, they would take fishing line, tie it to the desk or kitchen table or the piano with four feet of mono and then tie that to the glasses. So there's always a pair of glasses at each station they'd be at. Then they'd forget that they were tied down and they would get up and walk away and their head would jerk back. So I don't want to have to have reading glasses. I finally get this tied on and it may have been the first cast in front of a bush that a massive trout comes out and grabs the fly. Now at this point, I'm using the streamer, the bacon flies, my underwater strike indicator. I throw it out. It settles on the bottom. The worm swings downstream. If something grabs the worm, the bacon fly moves. I set the hook. Almost immediately that this bacon fly hits the water and this purple worm goes under this tree, I'm on a fish and immediately break it off. The gentleman were a little bit flabbergasted by the size of that fish that I just hooked and lost. I can't believe it either. It's the first trout I have hooked in months that I almost could have landed. So I go back to the drawing board. I forget 6X. I go to my bag. I take out regular monofilament 4X, tying another worm. And I miss several fish, again, right in front of the rocks at the tail of the pool. And these guys are questioning what I'm throwing that is so big. I tell them it's my bacon fly. And they ask if I use that there regularly. And I said, yeah, if everyone else is nymphing with micro little flies through here and I throw my big meal through there, chances are they're probably either going to bite it out of aggression or bite it because it's more food than they've seen in a long time. Now, this stream is going to have regular insects in it, plus crest bugs and scuds that are going to wash in from up above. So who knows what's in the water that they're going to eat, but these fish see different flies every day of the year. My theory is I throw something big, I catch a big fish. And I think it was my buddy Chris or Philippe I took up a long time ago. We pulled out about a 22-inch fish from that section on the bacon fly on 8-pound Berkeley Vanish. And everyone was amazed that I was able to do that while they're all sitting there nymphing size 28 midges. I move up and down some more. Again, we are rotating holes. There's sort of an, uh, an understood but not discussed etiquette that everyone's moving up and down and talking briefly. And you're hanging out with photographers. There was a woman doing a, a pregnancy shoot. 
and just people stopping off, taking pictures, walking dogs. I move back up to that hole and there's that rainbow trout that went after my bacon fly twice before. So I cast upstream a couple times and swing the worm down and I watch that bacon fly jerk. I set the hook and I'm hooked into my first trout other than the brook trout I lost Columbus Day weekend in Virginia. That's a big rainbow. The thing that strikes me most is the color of it. It had a beautiful crimson stripe down the side with a creamy pink to white belly and large spots. Mostly perfect fish. Its tail was intact. Its fins were intact. It didn't have a beat up nose from growing up in a hatchery. It's a very healthy, pretty fish. And I swing it over into the shallows, get my hand wet, go to grab my camera and it pops off. And the guys across from me are cheering me on that I finally got a fish. At this point, I decide maybe I'm going to stay a couple more minutes, try and catch another one. Because, wow, I finally caught my fish. Hal Rains inspired me in August to pack up my trout gear and head north. Now, there was nothing rising, so there's no bamboo fishing. It was just streamers and nymphs now. I move up and down, no luck. The gentlemen across from me have moved. So I decide to go find them, take out a business card, stick a couple of bacon flies in it, a couple of the worms, and I decide it's time to leave now. It's about 3.40 in the afternoon. Spent way too much time there, and I'm going to head back south of the Mason and Dixon line. I find the gentleman fishing the chute coming right out of the reservoir, the lake, the pond, whatever you want to call it. Hand them my flies, hand them my card, inform them about the podcast, and I'm on my way. And I'm taking the back roads again through Pennsylvania, which roads I've never been on before, which are much more pleasant than the main roads and just enjoying the pastoral landscape of Pennsylvania. And as I get towards Gettysburg, I notice the Taco Bell sign on the side of the road. And I decide like I'm normally going to do to celebrate catching fish. I'm going to go get a bag of tacos, a big club soda, and I'm going to drive home listening to music. As the sun set over the Catoctin Mountains, I got home in time to light the Hanukkah candles and have a good night's sleep. And I was exhausted when I got home from chucking that streamer all day long. My ankles hurt from so much walking. Didn't tell the wife I had a bag of tacos and there was a pepperoni pizza being made in the oven. My daughter and I watched a Christmas movie and I got a fantastic night's sleep. I don't know if I'm going to get back It'd be nice to meet up with producer Jason. It's about two hours for each of us to go to those streams. I have hand-me-downs for his daughter. I have a boat for him to take with him. My license is still good for two more weeks. But that was my beautiful Sunday chasing brown trout, rainbows, palominos, and Penn's Woods. So to continue breaking down each stream, Falling Springs, Wide, very shallow, lots of brush around it, walking paths through suburbia, you're fishing people's backyards, scattered periodic parking lots. The Latorte, very few parking lots, more narrow stream, it has deeper holes and pools, spongy shoreline, gravel for reproduction. Falling Springs, the yellow breaches, starts off the fishing section for most people, a tailwater, if you will, below a spring-fed pond. 
with maybe 100 yards of this small canyon-like hillside-covered stream, which then meets to a freestone stream, which then moves down to a dam. Below the dam, you've got big plunge pool, and then it continues on as a very narrow stream throughout the neighborhoods. If you've never been to South Central Pennsylvania, I advise you to go. The books you want to read are Hal Raines, Fly Fishing Through a Midlife Crisis, and then Ed Shanks, Fly Rod Trouting, and then Vince Marinero's In the Ring of the Rise, and Fox's Dry Fly Fishing. These are historic people. They invented modern terrestrial fishing. They invented the sulfur fly. They invented crest bug patterns. They invented ants, beetles, hoppers, crickets. There are moth patterns you can fish that were developed there. It's an absolutely fascinating piece of water, and I can't wait to go back. That is it for my storytelling. Next week, we are going to go to England, and we're going to discuss Prince Charles fly fishing for Icelandic salmon. Thank you for downloading. This is episode 291. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.